Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. My guest today is Nicholas Adams, architectural historian and professor emeritus of art at Vassar College. Nick is back with us on the program to talk about his most recent book. The title is Gordon Bunshaft and SOM, Building Corporate Modernism, which is just out from Yale University Press. Welcome back, Nick. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great to have you here again. You're my most popular guest, uh, most frequent guest. Most frequent. Anyway, yeah, you most frequent. Well, you write so many books. So, uh, <laughs> so just to start off, I just want to say that this book, honestly, was a, really a pleasure for me to read. For one, it's so beautifully produced as a design object itself. Standing on its end on my desk, it sits a bit like the facade of Lever House itself, which graces its cover. Beautiful photographs throughout, beautiful layout and typography, and all of this seems to partake for me of the spirit of Bunshaft and of high modernism sort of generally. And that was for me part of the pleasure in reading the book. I felt when I was reading it I was engaged in or maybe escaping to a kind of contemplative, utopian, and completely rational world, the world actually I grew up in in the 50s and 60s, far from the day's headlines and the ungodly irrationality of Donald Trump and contemporary American society. So perhaps there's a question here, and the question is, is this a dream of a better time? And, and by dream, I mean just a dream. Or does modernism yet have something to offer us, and is that something that we can still build on, or is it just a kind of airy nostalgia and a fantasy about a better time or another time? Well, firstly, Tom, thank you very much for your kind words about the book. I think Yale University Press has really outdone themselves in production here. I agree. i was uh, flattened when I saw the final production and thought both paper and reproduction and all parts of it are really like a, a fine object. To your question, I think modernism does have something to offer us and does give us things to think about today. There is in its simplicity, in its clarity, in its attempts at honest expression something that we still long for in our architecture. That is, we see a great deal, have seen a great deal of complexity. We've seen a great deal of sometimes acrobatic exercises by buildings. And modernism offered a principle of approach towards the task of building. Principles are at a, um, a high price today, you might say. So modernism offered a way of doing things, a style of doing things, that I think we continue to refer to when we think about architecture, when we think about cities. I can actually elaborate on that very slightly. I mean, one of the charges against Bunchev, one of the frequent charges, is that his buildings have nothing to do with their surroundings. It was certainly leveled by critics at the time. But actually, when we look at buildings like Lieber House, or when we look at Beinecke, or when we look at the Albright Knox Gallery, three of Bunchev's buildings, though those buildings do not take up specific motifs from the buildings next door or in the immediate vicinity, they're extraordinarily well situated and sensitively situated in relation to the things around them. So modernism from the point of view of the postmodernist, was somehow disconnected from the things around it, but on its own principles was, I think, engaged in its community and in its, um, in its neighborhood. Yeah. 
So just to extend those thoughts a bit, is there a politics here in that modernism and these, these huge skyscrapers represent a kind of authority? And what is at issue here is the notion of monumentality, which is associated, of course, with fascist architecture to some extent. And it's one of the problems that Bunshaft, I know, is grappling with. But also modernism is a very democratic movement, I mean, it seems to me. So is there something here political that's being grappled with? Um... Well, there certainly is in the post-war period. I mean, these buildings, I mean, they are the beginnings of what becomes an extraordinary monumentality of, in the corporate sphere. Actually, Bunchev's buildings are surprisingly modest in relation to what architecture becomes in the 70s and um, 80s. I think the efforts that Bunchev and SOM made to put sculpture in front of their buildings to create comparatively amenable public spaces around their buildings was in fact part of a effort to you could say from one point of view to mask the monumentality of the corporate enterprise but on the other hand you could also say it's to humanize the place of capital in American society so Taking the more charitable interpretation, I think that these buildings do create and intend to create quite frequently public spaces for people to re- react with. I mean, the whole idea of Lever House, as they kept saying over and over again, was to create a front porch uh-huh. in which people could come and sit and eat their sandwiches at lunchtime. Which they do. Which indeed they do. Yeah. Yes, or they can go to the high-priced Lever House restaurant if they preferred to do that. But it is actually a place that was meant to be inviting. Chase Manhattan... When you go there, the plaza around Chase is always filled with people at lunchtime. All right, the wind whistles through, but it's going to whistle anywhere in lower Manhattan. Um, And um, it is meant to be a place that you can sit, move your chair around, enjoy the sun, be in open space. Mm -hmm. So this is a biography, you know, a specific sort of genre. Then it's a story about the life of an individual man and his works and his times to some extent. So who was Gordon Bunshaft, and how does one go about telling the story of such a person as Gordon Bunshaft? What did he leave, for instance, by way of evidence? And, and then, the, of course, the question comes up, did his immersion in the corporate anonymity of SOM make the task of doing a biography difficult? So it's a two-part question, I guess. But. It's a biography, but it's a biography of works more than a biography of a person. I mean, I would say that I explicitly avoid dealing with some of the naughtier issues around his private life about which I have thoughts or ideas, but in fact is not my focus. So it's a history of Gordon Bunchev through his buildings. And in in that sense, it's not what I would call a conventional biography. I've tried to make the view as panoramic and as wide as possible from his life, both to think about the culture around him and about the people he worked with. He's a difficult person to write about. There's no question he was a cantankerous man, easily irritated, He frequently admonishes himself in his early diaries to shut up, to not talk, to uh, not ramble on when he meets people. And by the time he gets to Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, they're just Skidmore and Owings at that point, by the time he gets there, he pretty much has perfected the non-answer. So he gives no lectures, he concedes no interviews, he's left no articles behind. He has no theory that he can enunciate. When we catch him in a couple of the interviews that he leaves behind, he says 
extremely banal things. When asked why he did a certain thing in a building, he answers, well, that was the logical thing to do. We did what was necessary. We got the materials and we used them in the appropriate way. We did an evaluation of function and that's what we came up with. So there's nothing very giving in those kinds of texts. And indeed, often when asked, he would say, I want the building to speak for itself. Or at one moment he says, I want the building to speak for me. So one of the tasks of the biographer or of the author writing about Gordon Bonchev was try to listen to what the buildings were saying. But his background must figure in some way into who he is and in, into his building. So can, can you talk a bit about that? I mean, he's a buffalo. Uh, he's a buffalo, buffalo lad. Yeah, I think, that, I think buffalo is very important and much underrated and, and, and kind of ignored by him, too. I mean, I think he doesn't see buffalo as offering particular distinction for an architectural um, background. Although, let's think about it a minute. He's born in Buffalo in 1909. His father is an egg merchant. That is, he cracks eggs and sells the yolks and the whites to bakeries and to restaurants and the like. So his father is humble in origin. The family has immigrated from the Ukraine, probably to avoid the pogroms. Mm-hmm. Bunchaft is the name of the family in Russia, with a, with a Z rather than an S. Uh, and um, the uh, family settles on the south side of Buffalo, are not well off. Why they come there, we don't quite know. His parents have ambitions for him. He takes violin lessons. When a sister is born, they move out to a streetcar suburb, Manchester Place. He plays tennis and is quite good at tennis. His father takes him for walks in the city. And there's one memory of that by actually one of the other partners who recalls Bunchev talking about the walks that his father took him on. He must have shown him the great grain elevators Uh and grain storage buildings, the great concrete Atlantis. They they loom over the whole city. You can't miss them. Yes. Perhaps he also saw Frank Lloyd Wright's Larkin building, which was still standing in those years. He doesn't give any record of it. Or indeed the Martin House. Uh which was just down the street from him. He must have gone by it and seen architecture in the Albright Gallery, which he tells us he did see on his way to play tennis. Or even H.H. Richardson's huge, monumental psychiatric center, which was, again, just down the road from him. So, in fact, he had an introduction to a wide range of American architecture, both functionalist, you might say, and the grain elevators that were so praised by Le Corbusier, but also historic architecture in, in Richardson and modern architecture in Frank Lloyd Wright. So he, he did go to school in Buffalo. He attends high school in Buffalo and then goes to MIT. I think there's one of the characteristics of Bunshaft is that he was a person of decisiveness. This comes through in all his dealings with clients, all his dealings with the staff. When he had decided on something, he went ahead with it. And that decisiveness is visible early on. He's not a sociable person. He has problems in school, which hold him back. He may have had some form of dyslexia. He's not writing. He's not lecturing. Maybe part of that. Maybe even Asperger's of some form. He could never count on what he could say in his wish to be quiet or silent or not say something. He could say things that were inappropriate to a client. At his violin lessons, his teacher, Frank Davidson, who's quite a prominent musician in the city, 
has two sons at MIT. So Bonchev decides he's going to go to MIT. Uh-huh. He has a relative in Boston as well. He's clear about that from the age of 11. Mm-hmm. It's the school he knows. His parents probably don't know any schools. Mm-hmm. He's going to go to MIT. A doctor sees one of his drawings, which I reproduce or something similar in the book, and um, tells him he should become an architect. Uh-huh. But he's very clear about what he's going to do with that. He also likes to build things, though, doesn't he? He has a, I mean, he's a interesting yes. carpentry. He, so, he, yeah. He's not sociable as a young man, mm-hmm. as a teenager. And he hides himself in his parents' house in the basement where he creates a workshop to make furniture and apparently makes some changes to the house. And I was in touch with the people who own the house today, but nothing left. But he has photographs of his furniture. and He, was, he must have done quite complicated work, I mean, including turning and complex joints. So he's really a maker at an early age. For me, one of the most illuminating parts of the book is your description of the way these buildings got built and the division of duties among team members assigned to a building or assigned to a project that went on at SOM. So SOM is a big part of his story and your story here, including the production managers and material managers, you know, all the sort of layers of people participating in a project. So can you talk a bit about this, just to give an idea of the size and the number of SOMs undertakings in Bunchev's time and what it took to build a building like this? Well, one of the things that I've tried to do here, but it actually is one of my interests generally, is to understand how buildings are put together. We have a tendency, it's our romantic natures, I guess, to ascribe to buildings as we want to ascribe to plays or poems or novels a kind of single authorship. We say that a building is by Bramante or by Borromini or by Butterfield or by Caesar Pelli. But in fact, there's an entire team of people who put a building together. And the role that those people play is very hard to tease apart because we never really know where ideas come from. I mean, they can come from the client they can come from somebody walking by on the street saying, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? They can come from the humblest drafts person to the most senior partner in the firm. So Bunshaft attempted to collect a group of 38 buildings that he thought were his mm-hmm. and where he had a major impact. So he yeah. couldn't tell you easily himself which buildings... He put together a list for an earlier book on himself, to which I'm dedicated for much of the early research by Carol Krinsky, this list of buildings. What he was not keen to do was to tell you how the entire staff worked. He might praise one person or another person. And what I tried to do in writing about production was to show how a building moved through in the process. That's very illuminating in that way. It's complicated, and it's something people sometimes don't want to read, but I think interesting. That is that we have people who are draftspeople, we have people who are senior designers, we have people who are project managers, and we have people who are job captains. But what did they do? How did they work? And one of the things that emerges is, of course, that they're Senior designers and project managers are very important people. Bunchev kept them in tight order under his controls. I try to describe the process by which a project comes into SOM, in which the administrative partner is assigned, the project manager is assigned, and the senior designer is assigned. And 
Bunshaft works with those three people to develop the concept for the program and for the building itself. What emerges, though, most particularly, is that SOM had a very clear way of dividing authorities. The administrative partner was a partner in the firm, and he was responsible, they're all men at this point, for determining how much would be spent within the office on the building, how much time would be spent on it. He controlled the purse springs. The senior designer would be the one who oversaw the development of the design And there would be a design partner who might oversee the development of the design, overseeing the senior designer. Bonchev got himself into a position where he would be not just the administrative partner, Mm -hmm. but he'd also be the design partner. Thus, he could, in effect, go to himself and ask himself how much money he wanted to spend on the building, (laughs) and then determine how much money would be spent on the building. Whereas what most people had to do was to go to an administrative partner, convince that partner of the amount of money that they would be spending, as in the amount of time that they would be consuming on the building. So when Bunchev speaks of certain buildings as his, in effect, what he's saying is, I controlled the money and I controlled the design. Nonetheless, I mean, I I think one of the things that the book attempts to do is to make it plain that it's Gordon Bunshaft and SOM. It's not something that he can do on its own. It's not something they do on their own. You make the point that he wouldn't have been Gordon Bunshaft if it hadn't been for SOM, basically. If you look at my dear colleague Carol Krinsky's earlier book on Bunshaft, as I say, for which I'm always indebted, its title is Gordon Bunshaft of Skidmoreings and Merrill, uh, uh, yeah. suggesting that somehow Gordon yeah. Bunshaft stands out and above SOM. And I've tried to suggest that Gordon Bunshaft is, only exists because of SOM. Yeah. And those 38 buildings that he highlights is only a small portion of the buildings that he was involved in. Yeah. Yes, and he's with the firm right from the beginning, isn't he? I mean, there's a question as to whether yeah. it should have been Skidmore Owings and Merrill or Skidmore Owings and Bunshaft. Yes, so, well, yeah. Skidmore Owings and Bunshaft, as he yeah. pointed out, it would have, the initials of the firm would have been <laughs> SOB. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't have washed. So generally, you organize the book chronologically by the buildings that are associated with them. And since the buildings speak for themselves, I thought we might go through a couple of them. Although there are so many buildings, you cover so much ground here that we couldn't hit on all the highlights in our interview. But we have to, of course, talk about Lieberhouse, which is his sort of masterpiece, isn't it? One of his masterpieces. And I wonder if you could say a few words about Lieberhouse. Well, Lieberhouse is the most important of his early buildings. That is, remember he's, in 1952, since the war, he's been at the firm, he's been there since 1945, and he was there before the war, so he's already been 10 years or so at at, at SOM. It's an interesting building. It's important for lots of reasons. It is, for New York, one of the first all-glass buildings. It's modeled on the United Nations headquarters in many ways, but it does something the UN doesn't do. One, it is glazed on all four sides, and secondly, it attempts to make a relationship. Indeed, it establishes a relationship with the street, with the low-level square donut, that it, which is to the south of the, of the slab, the main tower. Urbanistically, it's a significant contribution. It brings light and air to the city. It had an extraordinary reception. 
the Lever Company looked after all the public relations, and there were millions of column inches devoted to the building. It had a, a kind of spectacular quality, not just glass all the way around, but it had these marvelous window washing machines that went up and down uh-huh. the outside. In fact, my, my grandmother brought me into New York to see the window washing oh. machines that went <laughs> up and down on the outside. And uh-huh. I was rewarded with the chance to see them going briefly through their paces. There is some question, and I think that's raised in the book, how much is actually Bunchev's, or what is Bunchev's contribution to this building? Because the idea of a an idealized tower of this sort set in the city with glass on all four sides had in fact been suggested by Bunchev's senior partner, Nathaniel Owings, in a publication in 1947. And the documents that we have show that it was Owings and Skidmore who directed Bunchev to go look at the United Nations building for a model. And Bunchev admits in one interview that it was Owings who suggested that the tower be turned at right angle to the street, that it would have greater effect. And he admitted that that was Owings' contribution. So one of the things that's interesting about the building is that much of the original character of the building came in a collaborative effort between Owings, Skidmore, uh, Bunshaft, and the people who worked out the technology to have the glass sit as it does in the frame of the building. Moreover, as some people have said, the real publicity hound at Lever House and at the Lever Company was the head of Lever in the United States, a man by the name of Charles Luckman. And Luckman was fired just before the building was <laughs> was completed. And it was observed by people that had Luckman survived, the building would have been known as Luckman's Lever House, not Bunchev's Lever oh, House. And Bunchev made every effort to make sure that all the publicity that went along with this building was directed towards him. Uh-huh. So this is this great... The accolades that come to this building are gathered by and received by Bunchev as his achievement, although most people once you look at the evidence, understand that it's a building which is really put together from a number number of sources. So Leverhouse is this great shining example attached to Bunshaft's name of which we can be somewhat suspicious of the degree to which Bunshaft's claim of authorship may be exaggerated. So Bunshaft is concerned about his own reputation even though he's buried... Desperately. Desperately. That is... To say, he would say that, the firm would say, let me put it another way, the firm would say that they are a collective, that they work by the will of the individual is subsumed in the activities of the group. So they're corporate themselves. I mean, they're they're working for corporate America, but they're very corporate. That's right, that's right. It's all about the collective undertaking. There's an exhibit in 1950 at the Museum of Modern Art in which this is stated very clearly, and it was a principle to which Owings and others subscribed. Bunchev, by contrast, would say, and did say, that you needed to have a strong aesthetic principle and a strong aesthetic leader, somebody who had taste, ideas, and capacity, who would lead this collective 
and he was the person. Uh -huh. He believed that he was that person, and therefore he was justified in claiming these buildings as his because they were the fruit of his imagination in large, even if Leverhouse wasn't, he was claiming responsibility anyhow. But he was, he was a person who was very much focused on, in a sense, being the artist architect. I mean, that's a, another topic, but Bunchev really wants to see himself as the heroic single figure responsible for these buildings because he's the one who has the idea behind it. So forget all these people who are putting the building together. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into his interest in art, but he certainly admires the artist who can create something yes. independently. Yeah, so. so a very different building, also spectacular, is his Connecticut general headquarters. Not an urban building, is it? It's out in... No, this yeah. is a rural campus. Yeah. I mean, it was a building which was built from the inside out. It was built around function. And, uh -huh. and this was a practice that a, any good modernist would subscribe to. Uh -huh. And Bunchev admired the process that the company had laid down for the building of the building. And it is in a sense, a perfect modernist building. That is to say, the you know, an insurance company, the letters and the requests and the, the forms come in one end and they have to go through a series of offices before they come out the other end, either in the form of a check or a, of a new insurance policy. So it is, in that sense, a paper factory. And what was especially interesting about the building, it, it is part of that movement of the American business out from the city, in this case from Hartford, and the facility was provided with, and this is how your sense of modernism as a form of utopia, it was provided with all the conveniences that the staff needed. So there was a restaurant, there were bowling alleys, there was a theater where they could put on amateur productions, there was tennis, there was uh, shops and, and uh, fashion displays at midday. So once you came to the office, you were in effect to stay there and then do your exercises in the afternoon. So, so there's not an underscoring here of hierarchy in, in the building itself, is there? Uh, no, this was actually a subject, subject of much debate within the firm because you have the main body of the office areas, which is a, a square three-story building with glass on the outside. And then the question was, where would the executives go? So it was the idea of Fraser Wilde and the leaders of Connecticut General that they should have their offices inside that square block. And SOM actually resisted that idea, partly to create a kind of um, abstract balance between the forms, um, but also because it was felt that the square block would be so democratic that it wasn't as if you were going to see the executive head uh -huh. if you were just simply engaged on the, on the floor of the building. Uh -huh. So that's how that little separate building was there. And then everybody parks in the same parking lot, of course. Yes, yes you all yeah, park at yeah. either end at the parking yeah. lot. You might have an, uh, an executive's parking space, but, you but you're still in the same, same lot. Yeah. It's very difficult to get into this building, and, and um, they don't welcome visitors. I was yeah. snuck in for lunch. <laughs> I wonder, in terms of bringing art into the, these buildings, can you talk about uh, Bunchev's relationship with artists, especially with Izamu Noguchi, uh, but his interest in art in general? I mean, he was a collector, wasn't he? He was a collector and a painter. Uh -huh. uh, oddly, we've discovered, and maybe you can post it, a painting by him from oh, yeah. 1939. Yeah, we'll put it on the web page as a front page of the... Of the, of the which is uh, actually about to be published in Architectural Record. 
but we can beat them to it. Uh -huh. Uh, he was a painter, and his painting is somewhat derivative in character. He was not a serious painter. For example, he did a copy of a Mondrian, which he put in his apartment. He demonstrated an interest in art from early years, perhaps from the time that he was a, a furniture maker. When he's in the army, he attempts to buy works by Le Corbusier by cutting out Le Corbusier's gallery and getting a better price. Oh. Le Corbusier will have none of that. No, no. <laughs> um, but he did collect, he and his wife collected very seriously through their life. And he collects important painters and important works. Miro, a very close relation with uh, Dubuffet and Henry Moore, whom he admires greatly. Afro Basildella is another artist whom he's very fond of. Helen Frankenthaler he buys. And he collects also a great deal of African art. Much of it is in the mat, some of it's on, yeah. the, on display. All the paintings end up at MoMA. Some of them have been distributed. He tends to go for abstract art, post-World War One up to, well, Frankenthaler, he's, he's still buying in the 70s. And he believes that art is an essential component of serious building. That is, if you're going to build in this reduced modernist way, you need to create something both contrasting, so potentially organic in nature, or contrasting in spirit, if you think of Noguchi's works in relation to, let's say, 140 Broadway, where you have the cube on its corner, that will create a kind of playful quality to the building. He wants sculpture by Noguchi inside Lever House and is deeply disappointed that Lever won't pay for it. This is after Luckman is given the heave-ho. The company is not prepared to pay for art. So it's an essential part of the building, and he pushes for it even under adverse circumstances. So the American Republic insurance, Watson Powell, who's the head of American Republic, knows nothing about art whatsoever. And Bunchev takes him around and shows him what he needs to buy, and he ends up buying Calder to put in the courtyard there. It's been replaced since then by um, uh, Pomodoro. Similarly, at the Banque Lombert, the family has some older paintings that they've purchased and put around, but Bunchev takes the young Baron Lombert around to the galleries, and they buy works by Moore and Giacometti, who was another Bunchev favorite, to put around the building. So art for him is an essential part of the building. Yeah, it seems to be a, maybe a strategy to mitigate or mediate the monumentality of... Yes, I would probably say to make a contrast with, that is, it's, it's meant to be playful in relation to a serious yeah. building, and uh -huh. to create a kind of, or I believe, to create a kind of um, opposition. And his great friend is the gallery director and curator, James Johnson Sweeney. And Sweeney writes an article about the role that sculpture and art should play in society. And he links it very much to the arguments of Huizinga and others about homo ludens. Uh -huh. It's about play. Oh, interesting. And so these works are meant to be contrasts uh -huh. with the... The, the seriousness of um, yeah. you know, uh, seriousness of the building and then the playfulness of yeah. the street uh -huh. or the beauty of the street. Yeah. So, for example, at Lincoln Center, most people know in front of the theater 
the seated woman of Henry Moore, which is very fine and creates a very beautiful effect in the water with the theater behind it. But also around the side, in front of the library, where Banchev's building is at Lincoln Center, is a work by Calder called uh, Guichet. So it's the ticket window. And it's a work of three legs that sit on the ground and arc together. But you might say, where's the window? Which, which place do you come in? Where do you go out of? So it has a kind of playful effect. And I think Bunchev, though he was not in... Um, his play tended to be a little harsh. That's his way of playing with you. I have to say, the Noguchi sculpture in the courtyard of the Beinecke does alter the whole character of that building when you're working there anyway. You know, you can see it from almost anywhere on the ground floor, and it activates not only the Beinecke, I mean, it makes it into a sculpture object itself, or it underscores the fact that it is a sculpture object, but it also, that whole square, you know, including Woolsey Hall, the uh, administration building, I forget what it was called, and then um, the dining commons, it, uh, it brings that all together in a nice way, and it's the Noguchi that does it. Uh, yes, so. I mean, I think, that, I, think, I think that's, in a way, Beinecke is Bunchez's most personal building, and it's the building which he creates his most sculptural object. Uh-huh. I mean, it just sort of sits yeah. up there, and then you go inside, and this is magical. I mean, if, yeah, if people is. who've not been to the Beinecke Library have missed one of the major experiences yeah. of American it's a glass architecture. glass skyscraper inside of a yes. marble uh, cube. Yeah, no, no, and, and this this wonderful kind of Romanesque dark space, which is filled by these, this magical box of books. Yeah. And you come in, and it's... What is this place? It's a library. What do we have? Books. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, elevated, almost levitated. Yeah. So his buildings can be sculptural. He's a painter, but he's also a sculptor in a sense. And of course, that you know brings home the fact that with that MoMA show of uh, SOM, his models are on display in the Museum of Modern Art early on. So yeah. yes, so, yeah. He's a, I think his ambitions to be a sculptor. I mean, his closest friends are Dubuffet and Moore. He is not friendly particularly with Noguchi. They battle continuously over various things, but Noguchi is somebody he works with and works with very effectively. His ambitions are to be a sculptor in some way, to have the kind of control that a sculptor has. And as time goes on, he's able to create buildings that have more of the qualities of sculpture, whether it's the Hirshhorn or 9 West 57th Street. So he's built other libraries like the LBJ Library in Austin, Mm -hmm. uh, and also you mentioned the uh, Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library. And then he's also had his hand in museums like the Hirshhorn and also the Albright Albright Knox. I think one of the most interesting things about Bunchheft is that there are, in a way, two Bunchefs. You mentioned the libraries. We have the Beinecke and we have Lincoln Center. We have art galleries, the Albright Knox and the Hirshhorn. We have skyscrapers and tall office buildings. So let's say Lever House and 9 West 57th Street. What we discover as we look at those is we've got two different ways of making buildings. Mm-hmm. One is glass and steel and the other is concrete. And there is a great break in Bronchev's career. Mm -hmm. When in the late 50s, he begins to work closely with the Hungarian-born engineer Paul Weidlinger. And Weidlinger really opens Bronchev into new ways of making buildings. You might say that those buildings, I mean, despite the fact that the early buildings, despite the fact that they're glass and steel, structurally they're quite conventional Mm -hmm. in some way. There's nothing 
really exciting to write home about. They're, they're rectangular, they're reticulated, they're glass and steel. Whether it's Pepsi-Cola, which is one of his most beautiful, or, or Lever House. Yeah, skin and Bones, right? Skin and Bones. Yeah. Weidlinger is a different character, and Weidlinger is an engineer who trains in Hungary, who has worked with Le Corbusier, and who does not believe that you should ever be conservative. He believes in being radical. Mm-hmm. And Bunchev, in a sense, has to come to terms with this new collaborator. Concrete has become more popular. Le Corbusier builds Ronchamp, builds the Unité d'Habitation in Marseille. Frank Lloyd Wright has done the Guggenheim, which is rather perhaps too influential on the, for the Hirshhorn. And Saarinen has done the TWA, so on and so forth. So Bunchev now feels impelled, compelled to work in concrete. He also feels compelled to work in concrete because Mies... Van der Rohe is stuck doing steel buildings. So he's going to do something different. And Weidlinger is the one who makes that possible. And Weidlinger makes it possible for Bunchev, in a way, to be a sculptor. And what's interesting about these two ways of building is that the concrete buildings are much more inventive structurally. Beinecke is fascinating with this sort of Virendil truss that works through it. You have 9 West 57th with this great sloping front. You have the nervy-like quality of the Hirshhorn set up on a base, these cells underneath, these marvelous windows inside. But those are two ways of doing things. And the jury has for a long time said that early Bunshaft is good Bunshaft, and later Bunshaft, the sculptural Bunshaft is the bad Bunshaft. But what's happened very recently, and it, it emerged in one of the discussions that we had around the book and around Bunshaft in New York, run incidentally by um, Ben Prosky, who's yeah. a Vassar graduate. With, with crowds out in the street. I Evidently. Mean, should have televised it. So. Yes. <laughs> Magari. Yeah. Well, you know, you'll never see Francesco Delco and Alexandra Lang on the same yeah. program yeah. ever again. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that the older generation, of which I suppose I would have to count myself, has tended to favor the early buildings. The new fashion for, for brutalism and for concrete, uh-huh. those people tend to favor the latter buildings, uh-huh. the later buildings. Yeah. So what we're seeing is that tastes are changing uh-huh. over time. And this, this is going to have a, an effect ultimately on why we need to know these buildings better, because they're all under threat. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Whether it's Connecticut General, forget who now owns it, have long threatened that they might take that building down. Amhart has gone, which was one of his uh, buildings. Yeah. Union Carbide is being taken down as we speak. Uh, and and Albright Knox will yeah. be forever transformed yeah. with the renovations that are going on now. So these are buildings about which we need to make up our minds in some way. I wanted to ask about changing fashion you mentioned and Bunchev's tiff with Venturi when Bunchev was in D.C. The story seems to me to be an emblematic one, an emblematic of the changes in fashion and taste. Gordon Bunchev is appointed to the Commission of Fine Arts, and the Commission of Fine Arts has the responsibility of overseeing the new building in the District of Columbia and also beyond. But the District of Columbia that concerns us here, and Robert Venturi brings to the Commission of Fine Arts a proposal for Transportation Square, a building of very ordinary character, and he's given permission by the chairman of the Commission of Fine Arts to 
give a little explanation of the building. And he does that, setting it in a long history going back to Mount Vernon uh -huh. and Christopher Wren and so on and so forth. Much the longest speech that is ever given or the presentation that's ever given at the commission in these years, as far as I can tell. And Bunchev prepares the response. And the response is, enough of this. Words are easy. Buildings are hard. Uh, and what you've given us is a lot of air and, and hot air surrounding a very, very ordinary building. And we're not interested in ordinary buildings. We want buildings that are original and distinctive. To this, Venturi replies, but I worked hard to make this building ordinary. Uh, and, 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 and Bunchev then comes back to say, well, that's why we don't want your building. And the story has gained somewhat emblematic status because Venturi then reproduces both his speech and Bunchev's reply in print. And Denise Scott Brown, his, Venturi's wife, describes Bunchev as a thug and the Commission of Fine Arts as being unfeeling and unresponsive. Now, what's interesting is that we could say what we like about Venturi's building. He certainly tries to design a building that will be, uh, as he says, ordinary. So that actually what we get there is a contrast between the modernist designer who wants his building to respond to function and to need to create, as Bunchev wants to at that point, a strong statement for the purposes of the building. And Venturi's approach, which rests very much on the context, which in that part of Washington is very ordinary. So what we see played out in front of us is the contrast between what comes to be called postmodernism and modernism as represented by Bunchev. Now, the part that is in a way, sad and troublesome about the entire episode is that there's, in fact, more than one appearance by Venturi before the Commission of Fine Arts. And that second appearance has been razored out of the minutes, both the version at the Commission and the version of the National Archives. So we actually don't have the full transcript of what went on between them, deeply felt on someone's part, yeah. sufficiently deeply felt to, to take it away. damage yeah. government yeah. property, you might say. <laughs> I mean, it's really extraordinary yeah, so episode. You can see the pages have just been oh, razored yeah. out. Oh. They didn't have a lot of kind words to say to, no, say, to never. Say one another. But that, they were both themselves emblems of that's uh, right. their own style. And, so, and of course, uh, Venturi was a young man at that point, yeah, yeah. but of coming to the end of his career. Yeah, very interesting. You mentioned the preservation problem of modern buildings, and uh, one building that was not preserved was the one house that I know of that Bunchev designed his own home. Yes. So uh, what happened there? Because, uh, you know, your, your photographs are beautiful. Yeah. They really are beautiful. Yeah. Um, we, we don't have to bash anybody, but unfortunately the house isn't there and the collection is gone also because it's a house built around his art collection. Correct. Yeah. Or a, a collection built around the house. Uh -huh. So this is a building that he and his wife erected in the early 60s out on Long Island. Bunchaft was, in a sense, and for this one has to admire him, true to himself. He did not believe that his collection should be preserved or was prepared to see it dispersed, which is what the Museum of Modern Art did with much of it. And 
pieces sold off. And once the collection had gone from the house, there was really little chance of it being preserved. It was quite small. It was quite tight, and without its art, it had very little character. Oh, awesome. So I it was see, sold yes. by the Museum of Modern Art to Martha Stewart, yeah. who wanted to undertake some renovations, which would have changed the profile of the house. In this, she was thwarted. She sold or gave the house to her daughter, who then sold it, right. and it was destroyed by yeah. the new owners. Well, yeah, too bad. Although, I suppose, as you say, if it was a house built in close connection to the art that was in it. Once the art was gone, the house was the, the, what well, the, the, I think the last illustration I have in the book is of a bank building in Carla Place on Long Island, which is basically the same form as the house. Oh, okay. I mean, this was not a building of an elaborate character. It was a very simple series of walls placed to display the view of the sound and the, or the pond out in front and to hold the works of art. Yeah. So it had no particular character. And in fact, it's a design that he uses at Carla Place for the bank building, uh -huh. SOM uses for the bank building, as well as for another bank in Palestine, Texas, uh -huh. the Royal Bank. And in fact, it's not that far from a design for a supermarket, oh. the Boang supermarkets yeah. in okay. uh, Long Island. Yeah. One critique that is leveled against modernist architecture and modernism itself over this whole period, which, as I say, I remember well, the 50s and 60s, and watch, you know, reruns from that period, Perry Mason and the Saint, you know, every night. The whole period, one critique is it's anti-feminism, and, and the world of corporate architecture wasn't known for its promotion of female architects, for sure, in this period. But Bunshaft, however, worked closely with and seems to be spoken well of by the few female colleagues that he had at SOM, like Natalie Dubois, and also always telling his secretarial staff. Is that accurate, oh, he, do you think? He, or? he treated everybody the same. <laughs> okay, well, that's good for a modernist. And, uh, and, I mean, he and, treated and everybody the same. A democratic so person, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, Natalie would say that he was forthright and direct with her, but he was forthright and direct with everybody. He did admire her abilities. He used her a great deal mm -hmm. as a senior designer, and he advanced her career in significant ways. This contrasts with her later career at SOM, where Bruce Graham, for whom she worked there, and Myron Goldsmith, she felt, did not advance her career and attempted to suppress her abilities. So Bunshaft, he certainly was not particularly kind to his wife, but to women employees, he seems to have uh, treated them no differently, which is to say badly, mm -hmm. than his male. Yeah. But he was known for being gruff, for sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes not yes, everybody yes. loved the man. No, so, no, no. Right? Yeah. No, so, no, no. Yeah. He was not an easy person to be around yeah. or to be with. I wanted to mention your photographs because I remember some of them and also the photography from your first book on SOM, Ezra Stoller. So do you have anything to say about those? Because they really are a big part of the book. They're, I mean, they're an anywhere, part of the book. anywhere Stoller's photographs appear, you stop and look. Ezra Stoller was the photographer for SOM and for Bunshaft in particular. They met at the Metropolitan Museum where Stoller had done some early work for SOM. And in effect, Stoller's photography is the signature uh -huh. for SOM. Oh, that is to say, all the other offices, when they had a specially important building, wanted Stoller to photograph their buildings. And so he becomes a kind of unifying factor. And he, the buildings have, as a result, this, I mean, the photographs tend to be relatively cool and uh, distanced. 
but they reveal significant parts of the building. Stoller was trained as an architect himself, oh, and he saw yeah. buildings through the eyes of architects. And, you know, you could say Bunchev wanted his buildings to speak for themselves, but he also wanted Stoller to speak for his buildings. And Stoller uh -huh. becomes the kind of unifying force, and we were very, uh, the generosity of Erika Stoller that made it possible for uh, us to have so many. Uh, yeah, these. there are, uh, that book is wonderfully illustrated. I really did appreciate the text layout, too. I mean, it was really, yeah, really it's a book to be read, I want to point out. Yeah, it is to be read. Well, it's easy to read, I mean, the yeah. because of the layout of the text. So. The layout of the text and the type size. Yeah. And, and it that. doesn't skip on the text, you know, there are whole pages of text, but beautifully, uh, you know, beautifully framed and nicely done. So, any last thoughts about doing a scholarly biography like this? Well, you know, I have a very dear friend who, when I slightly apologized for writing another biography because you're supposed to write about problems, said to me, shaking his head, he said, people are puzzling. And I said, yeah. And he said, no, no, I mean that. That's a profound statement. He said, people are puzzling. Mm -hmm. And I think no one was more puzzling than Gordon Bunshaft in that respect. So silent, so diffident, so explosive at times, so unattractive in many ways. And he was a person that took a long time to get to know and to have some sympathy for how he behaved and what he did, to listen hard to his buildings, to listen to what they say. If that's what he was saying, then we needed to know what they said. They didn't always say what he wanted, and I think that's why it was important to delve into the production who was doing what, but um, they do speak clearly, and they speak clearly about a period of the 1950s of modernism, and there are so many of them, too. I mean, there's so many of these buildings, and so many that have been imitated that we do need to sort of prick up our ears and listen. Yeah. So, great. So, I'd like to thank you, Nick, for coming to the Library Cafe today again to talk about, this time, your wonderful book, Gordon Bunshaft and SOM, Building Corporate Modernism, just out from Yale University Press. Tom, so thank you very much, and thank you for the coffee. That oh, you sure. Yeah, for, for this uh, yeah, occasion. Yeah, for once, yeah.